Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion Presbyterian Church. And if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your presence. And I pray that you would experience the embrace of the Lord through his body, the people of Zion. Last week, we started a new sermon, a sermon series uh, that Paul gave us entitled Life with Jesus. And you might wonder, why are we doing this series called Life with Jesus? Well, in the words of Stephen Nichols in his book, Jesus Made in America, America has its own quest for Jesus, its own reshaping of the Son of God, fashioning him into something more palatable to American tastes and acceptable to American sensibilities. He continues... For some Americans, Jesus is the consummate best friend and lover. For others, he is strong and mighty, ready for the defense of the weak. For others, still, he's a guru, a wise and enlightened sage. American Protestants, he, uh, for American Protestants, he is first largely due to the prominence of Werner Solomon's head of Christ, nearly angelic, soft, and beloved by children. For countercultural rebels, He's a crazed malcontent, hurling the establishment in the form of money changers from the temple. And for the inimitable Johnny Cash, he's the greatest cowboy of them all. (laughs) I know I love Johnny Cash. Now, here's the thing. It would be really easy and tempting to sit back and point our fingers out there. But here's the thing. We all, we all create Jesus or at least attempt to shape Jesus into our own images. We all domesticate him. We all try to turn him into something that he's not. And the result, instead of being conformed into his image, He becomes this weak, pathetic imitation of us. And we leave unchanged. Like a bad back that needs to return repeatedly to the chiropractor to be adjusted, our understanding of Jesus needs to be adjusted over and over and over and over again as our poor spiritual posture throws our perception of him out of line. So this is why we're doing a series called Life with Jesus. And my prayer for us, my hope for us in this season is that we would encounter the real Jesus and that he would turn our expectations, turn our misunderstanding of who he is on its head and in the process that he would warm our cold hearts and make us more like him. So with that said, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. We're just going to be looking at a couple of verses. Um, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. If you don't have a Bible, we do have that printed in your worship guide on page 9. Also, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. Just grab one out of the pew in front of you and take it home. We'd love for you to have a Bible. This is... 
God's word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Beloved, there's there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what we've just read, which is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us this morning. So pray with me, would you? Father, Son, and Spirit, we need you. We need you to speak, and we need you to unstop our clogged ears. Lord, we, we all come into this room in various states of joy and brokenness. And we would ask that we would encounter you, that we would taste and see that you're good, that you would warm our hearts and imprint yourself upon us. We can't do this on our own. We can't whip it up in ourselves. We ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your transforming power. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel of God. These are the very first words we hear from the mouth of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. These are his very first sermon, or at least a summary of his very first sermon. And they are a statement in embryonic form of Jesus' own self-understanding and it sets the trajectory for his ministry and his mission. And as such, it is pregnant with significance and meaning. The first thing that this passage tells us is that Jesus is the end of the beginning. Now, what do I mean? Well, Jesus begins. The time has been fulfilled. What that tells us is that Jesus understands his ministry and his mission as the fulfillment of something. But what is it the fulfillment of? It's the fulfillment of the mission of God first promised to our first parents in the Garden of Eden and unfolded in the story of the people of God known as Israel. Well, how's God going to pull this off? He says to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, after they sin, after he is cursed of the serpent in the ground, he says, one of your seed, I'm going to raise up one of your seed who's going to stomp the, the head of the serpent and the serpent will bite the heel of your seed. And the question is, how's God going to fulfill this promise? Well, he doesn't just say a word. 
you know, poof. He doesn't wave a wand. Instead, he calls a person, Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. But as often if not, as often as not, if you know the story of Abraham, he was a curse to the people around him just as much as he was a blessing to the people around him, right? You remember, right after God calls him, he goes to Egypt. He acts like he's not married to his wife, and Pharaoh and the course of Pharaoh end up paying the consequences. He's a curse. Or Hagar in Genesis 16 Abraham and Sarah decide that they're going to fulfill God's promise on their own terms. And it's a disaster. But God doesn't abandon his plan. Years later, centuries really, God calls Abraham's descendants out of slavery in Egypt. The Israelites. And he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai and he makes them his own people. And in in that process, he calls them to be a kingdom of priests By being a holy nation. In other words, they were supposed to live their lives in such a way that the watching world would look at them and go, I don't know what it is about them, but I want to be like them. I want to know their God. But if you know the story of Israel, you know that Israel didn't live that way. Rather, they adopted the gods of the nations and became like the the nations. But again, God doesn't abandon his plan. God, in his grace, sends prophet after prophet after prophet to call Israel back to covenant faithfulness. But over and over and over again, Israel stiff arms God, so much so that in 722 B.C., God sends the armies of the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom that's called Israel and take them into exile. Then in 586 B.C., God sends the Babylonians to the southern kingdom known as Judah, and, he takes, and they take them into exile. It looks like the end of the story, but God does not abandon his plan because God, through the prophets, makes these promises to the people of God, to the exiles in Babylon, that one day he will return, he will intervene, he will make all things right. The prophets say things like this. They say, the last, in the last days, many people will flock to the house of the Lord to learn his ways. And God will sit as judge between the nations and they will all beat their swords into plowshares because there will no longer be any need of them. War will be a thing of the past. This is the hope of every Jew as they return to Israel from exile. But after the exile, they return home and things don't seem to be any better. In fact, for most of those years between the return from exile and the arrival of Jesus on the scene, Israel is occupied territory. It's the armies of Babylon, the Persians. And when we come to Jesus' time, it's the Romans. And and the Israelites are just yearning and longing and wondering, when is God going to move? When is he going to keep his promise? And then Jesus arrives on the scene. And if you study his life, what you'll discover is that Jesus actually fulfills what Adam and Eve failed to do. 
in the garden, they embraced temptation and they sinned against God. In the wilderness, Jesus is tempted and he rejects the temptations and embraces the word of God. You'd also realize as you study Jesus that Jesus actually does what Israel failed to do. I mean, Jesus' life in many ways parallels. There are these interesting parallels between Jesus' life and the story of Israel. For instance, the Israelites cross through the Red Sea. Jesus goes into the Jordan River and is baptized. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness wandering around being tempted. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert being tempted. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. As Jesus says to Cleopas and his friend as they're walking on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday, everything in Scripture, and when he talks Scripture, he's talking Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Hebrew Bible points to me. So what does this mean for us? It means that we cannot understand or make sense of the story of Jesus if we don't understand the story of the mission of God in the Old Testament. It means that we cannot, will not be able to make sense of the story of Jesus until we begin to see that it is in fact the climactic episode of the great story of the Bible, the chronicle of God's work in human history. In other words, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to understand Jesus, you've got to know and understand the Bible. And particularly, you've got to know and understand the Old Testament. Jesus begins his sermon. The time is fulfilled, and then he goes on, and he says what? He says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word kingdom? For me, I think geographically. I think a land. I think of the United Kingdom. I think of borders. I think of property. I think of a land mass. But when Jesus announces the nearness of the kingdom of God, he is not talking about a geographical location because God owns, what, everything. He's not talking about geographical location. He's talking about the reign of God. He is announcing that God is king. God is now king. And you scratch your head and you think, hold it. I thought God was always reigning. And yes, he was always reigning. However, what Jesus is announcing is not that God was on the sidelines and now is, is active, but rather that, that, that God is on the move to fulfill the promise that he made over and over and over in the Hebrew Bible to make all things new, to, to undo the effects of the fall. And, and I think what's interesting is if you think about the life of Jesus, that's exactly what you see in his ministry and his, particularly in his miracles. The transformation of human hearts. That's the kingdom of God is at hand. 
the healing of lepers and blind folks, the raising of Lazarus from the tomb. What is that? That is the kingdom of God at hand. The feeding of the 5,000, what is that? That is the kingdom of God at hand. Jesus' ministry and miracles embody the arrival of the kingdom of God. And yet, the kingdom of God that Jesus embodies is not the kingdom anyone expects. What do I mean? All the Jews, all the Jews of Jesus' day looked forward to the coming of the kingdom of God. And all the Jews of Jesus' day believed that history was composed of two very distinct periods. You have the present age and you have the age to come. In the present age, which began when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and took creation uh, begin that the downward spiral, the brokenness of all of creation. The, 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 the present age began with that, and it has continued up to this point in time. Evil has continued to fester and flourish even among God's people. In the gospel, Mark portrays God's people as spiritually captive held in Satan's grip, which Mark depicts by the exorcisms Jesus and his disciples perform. That's this present age, but there's the age to come where, when, when God will intervene to cleanse and to renew his people. He will conquer all of Israel's enemies and through his cleansed and renewed people, he will bless all the families of the earth. This is the hope that Every Israelite longed for. But this hope is where the unity among the Jews ended. Various groups formed around different understandings of the kingdom. And their communal lives were shaped by their understanding of the kingdom. You've heard the people called the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees were deeply concerned about Jewish compromise with Greek culture. They believed that God could not and would not act to bring the kingdom as long as Israel remained culturally compromised. So to combat this compromise, they called for an urgent commitment to two things. Number one, complete separation from pagan culture. And number two, radical obedience to the Torah. They believed that through their moral efforts, they could actually trigger God trigger the coming of the kingdom of God. The Essenes, maybe, maybe you've heard of the Essenes. The Essenes were another group of Jews who were also driven by the same desire to combat assimilation into the Greek culture. But unlike the Pharisees, they were not content to work within the system. Rather, the Essenes withdrew. They believed that they alone were the true Israel and they formed an alternative community in the desert outside of Jericho, where they studied scriptures, prayed, and enforced careful adherence to the Torah. Like the Pharisees, they believed their faithfulness to the Torah could bring God back to restore the fortunes of Israel. Then there are the Sadducees and the priests who were the official teachers of the law. They represented sort of mainline Judaism in Jesus' day. 
But instead of withdrawing or separating from the Roman occupiers, they worked with them, seeking influential positions in society. They pursued power by collaborating with the Romans, and so they sought to maintain the status quo. Then, of course, they're the zealots who were all about war. They were all about revolution. They, they believed that if, if, if they went to war, they could cleanse Israel of, of the evil that infected them from outside. And then there were the common people who were not members of really of any party. These people looked for the day when God would return to redeem them from their pagan oppressors. They would then be free to obey the Torah and worship God in a cleansed temple and in a cleansed land. The promised Messiah was the focus of their longings. And until his coming, they, like the Pharisees and the Essenes, sought to be faithful so that God would speed the day. All of the Jews in Jesus' day had one common hope, the coming of the kingdom. But how this hope was to come about and what it would look like in the end was very different for the differing groups of Jesus' day. And here's the thing. It is also very different from what Jesus had come to do. Now, why do I tell you this? It's because we are not all that different from the Jews of Jesus' day. Every one of us walked in this room with a kingdom on our hearts, a kingdom that we would like to see established. But it's not the kingdom of God. For me, it's the kingdom of Jeff. For Kathy, it's the kingdom of Kathy. For Mark, it's the kingdom of Mark. For Thomas, it's the kingdom of Thomas. For you, it's the kingdom of you. Which is why, immediately after announcing that the kingdom of God is near, Jesus says what? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, let me ask you another question. What do you think when you hear the words repent and believe? Typically, what we think we're being called to do is to give up some private sin and to get right with God. We think in terms of personal morality and private religion. And while that certainly is a facet of what it means to repent and believe, that's not all that it means to repent and believe in the first century Galilee. Now, why do I say that? Consider the Jewish aristocrat and historian Josephus. Josephus is born a few years after Jesus is crucified. In 66 AD, he is sent as a young army commander to quell some rebellious rumblings in Galilee. His assignment, as he describes it in his autobiography, is to persuade the rebel leader to enter into a ceasefire with Rome and to trust him and the other Jewish aristocrats to resolve their complaints against Rome in a way that will be in the best interest of the rebels and enable everyone to peacefully coexist. So Josephus meets 
with the rebel leader and he says, set your agenda aside and trust me. And the words he uses are remarkably similar to those of Jesus in our passage. Josephus tells the rebel leader to repent and believe me. Now what I want you to see is that Josephus was not calling the rebel leader to give up a personal sin and get right with God. As one scholar points out, it had a far more specific and political meaning. When we examine Jesus of Nazareth 40 years earlier, going around Galilee and telling people to repent and believe the gospel, we dare not screen out these meanings. Even if we end up suggesting that Jesus meant more than Josephus did, that there were indeed religious and moral and theological dimensions to his invitation, we cannot suppose that he meant less. And then he writes this, he says, When Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel, he is telling his hearers to give up their agenda and to trust him for his way of being Israel, his way of bringing the kingdom, his kingdom agenda. Again, like the Jews of Jesus' day, every one of us walked into this room this morning with a kingdom agenda. What does that kingdom agenda look like? Well, think about your hopes and dreams. Maybe it's getting into a particular school. Maybe it's better physical health. Maybe it's getting married. Maybe it's having children. Maybe it's financial success. Maybe it's getting a promotion or or getting a particular job. Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with wanting any of those things. Nothing. Things like education and health and family or success are good things. That's why we call them blessings from God, right? But when our desires for these things become demands, we turn good things into God things. When our desires morph into demands, whether we know it or not, our good things morph into kingdom things. Our good things morph into idols, alternative gods, into substitute gods. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernst Becker describes what it looks like when a desire for a lover morphs into a demand for a lover. He writes, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. The love object is God. And here's the thing. God is a jealous God. Over and over he says, there is no other God beside me. He says, my glory I will not give to another. The question you and I have to ask as we sit in this room with our desires and our dreams is, whose dream is it? Whose kingdom are you building? Am I building How can you know if your desires have morphed into demands? Well, what do you do when Jesus says 
No. Or not yet. Or not ever. What happens when Jesus doesn't answer your prayers the way you'd like? What happens when Jesus doesn't bless your effort? What happens when you honor Jesus and do the right thing and things don't work out for you the way you'd like or expect? What happens when Jesus doesn't live up to your expectations or perform to your expectations? Beloved, Jesus' contemporaries, they were expecting the kingdom to come with power. Their vision of the coming kingdom included the liberation of Israel from their Roman occupiers and oppressors. We know how God liberated Israel from Egypt, the Egyptian oppressors and led them through the Red Sea to the border of the Promised Land. For the Jews in Jesus' day, the Exodus was the primary paradigm for how they expected God's kingdom to come in power, crushing the Romans and making Israel into the superpower it had always longed to be. Although kingdom expectations were diverse, Among the Jews, they were all looking for some sort of exodus-like event to bring them blessing of the promised kingdom. And when Jesus didn't live up to their expectations, their shouts went from Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The cries that they made on the day we call triumphal entry to a week later crucify, crucify, as he stood before Pilate. The Jews of Jesus' day had no idea that their biggest problem wasn't the Romans. Their biggest problem was their hearts. Should Jesus have come and brought the kingdom the way they wanted and expected, they too would have gone up in flames. But the good news of this passage is that Jesus called them and he calls us not only to repent of our kingdoms in our kingdom agendas, but also to believe the gospel, to believe the good news, to believe that God is at work, to believe that God has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for us to become sons and daughters, that God is on the move, that he is going to make all things new. When Jesus shows up on the stage of history and proclaims, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe in the gospel, the Jews were expecting that the kingdom of God would come in power and free them from the Romans. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. Instead, he came in weakness and he died the death of a criminal. And the punishment for humanity's sin was poured out on him. Why? In order that he might fulfill God's promise to bring God's blessing to us and through us to the ends of the earth.
in order that all creation would be freed from the dominion of sin and death and Satan, and in order that he might build a people, a bride, a church, through whom he would extend his blessings to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Jesus, you're better. You're better than anything we could ever imagine or ask. And you're you're not like what we would expect or design or even think that we would want. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, even in the way our hearts manipulate you and turn you, or at least try to turn you into a caricature of yourself. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, even when we attempt to build our own kingdoms instead of submit to you and live in yours. Thank you for your goodness and your grace that you don't live up to our expectations because what you're about is, is, is something far superior, far better than anything we could ever ask or imagine. Jesus, change us. Make us like you. Humble us. Allow us to see our own kingdom agendas and enable us to repent and believe the gospel. Thank you that you have provided a way to take people like us and make us sons and daughters. Thank you for this table which reminds us of how the king was coronated. He didn't sit down on a throne, but he went to a cross. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, as we come to this table, I pray that you would take these elements, the bread and the wine, and that you would use them for your purposes in our lives, that you would feed us, that you, that, that you would give us faith to know that you are here and that you are as real as this bread and this wine. Lord, feed us, encourage us, change us, use us. We offer ourselves to you Amen.